Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. All right, Ben, sorry. <laughs> Running late. We got a show to do. I'm Chewy Garcia. Not now, Chewy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> your ben jarofsky show for wednesday <laughs> oh god that's hilarious by the way we got i got a second Lori lightfoot for mayor commercial so i haven't seen that one yet d is hilarious your ben jarofsky show for <laughs> wednesday hilarious. november 16th is brought yeah, to you by yeah. seiu healthcare illinois indiana the chicago federation of labor the chicago teachers union and chicago reader chicagoreader.com for all things there is to know the city of chicago where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more every now and then. They don't talk about pot all the time, but you'll find it every now and again. But you'll always find columns from our very own Ben Jarosky, Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarosky, J-O-R-A, V is in victory, S-K-Y. I'm Chewy Garcia. Chewy! <laughs> It is Wednesday, November 16th, and this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Honest Liar Wednesday, and here's why. Uh, Donald Trump announced that he's running for re-election. Actually, it's not even a re-election. He's running for president. <laughs> but it seems like he's always running. <laughs> and he's always, like, around. So it's like, you can see why I made that mistake. So anyway, he announced that he's running for president again. Ladies and gentlemen, he announced last night at a speech at Mar-a-Lago. I watched that speech, or I watched a good chunk of it. I, after a while, I had to turn it off because it's just I couldn't take another second of it. But he looked he looked really oddly tan, like a, a different oh, really? version of the tan, an orangey glow more than he usually is. Uh, I think he's under the lamp. I'll ask my distinguished guest who's sitting by what he thought about the look of Donald Trump, like he was broiled or something. Uh, and he was, I had the feeling that he was under medication. Uh, and so they like gave him some kind of drugs to bring him down a little bit just so he wouldn't be the old. I was kind of looking for the old Trump and I didn't see the old Trump, but he was kind of meandering a bit. So kind of a disappointing uh, performance uh, in that line. Uh, Democrats are gleeful at this announcement. Because they realize that a good chunk of the population, the voting population, as one person put it, would walk across burning coals to vote against Donald Trump. Uh, and so that's always kind of a <laughs> hating the other guy is uh, is one motivation to get people to vote. And Donald Trump is widely hated by uh, many, 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 many voters. So Democrats think their chances are better with Donald Trump uh, on the ballot. I'd like to remind uh, Democrats before they get too cocky uh, that they thought that was the case in 2016. And look what happened. Uh, Republicans, uh, in, for many of the same reasons, are nervous. They want Donald Trump to step aside, uh, whatever usefulness he has served. Uh, they feel he is no longer useful to the Republican Party. Please leave. They are ready to promote Ron DeSantis to run. That's our guy. You leave, Don, Donald Trump. You lost us midterms. And I'm like, well, it's kind of a tricky thing, Republicans, because I would say easy, easy. Uh, estimation. We'll be talking about this with my guest who's on deck. Easy estimation is that 40% of the Republican Party, probably 50%, is Donnie to the core, Donald Trump to the core. So they're not going to just allow Donald Trump to be trounced uh, and maligned and marginalized by the chieftains of the Republican empire, whether they're the, the Murdochs who run Fox TV or uh, powers that be in the Senate, like Mitch McConnell. No, they're not going to let Mitch McConnell or Rupert Murdoch uh, trounce their guy. They're standing by their man, uh, to quote the old song. So I don't know where the Republicans think like 50% of their party is going to go. 
I don't know. Wait, wait is this gonna, is this going to disappear? Because you don't want you 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 don't think Donald Trump is useful anymore. And here's the thing. I don't know if you uh, saw the um, Dave Chappelle uh, opening monologue at Saturday Night Live uh, on Saturday. I, I did. I was laughing out loud in many parts. And we're going to have a deeper discussion of the uh, issues with Kyrie Irving and Kanye West and the Jewish community. Uh probably next week uh, with Mark Sims. He's eager to talk about that, and so am I. Although my distinguished guest uh, who's on deck, may we may have a little conversation about that. But the part that I find very apropos to this conversation, really good riff that Dave, uh, David Chappelle went on when he called Donald Trump an honest liar. And by that he meant, yes, he clearly lies all the freaking time. But every now and then, he says something so honest that you find it refreshing. Uh, the the example that Donald that uh, Chappelle used uh, on uh, Saturday Night Live was when Donald Trump was in the debate with Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, and uh, <laughs> he talked about the tax code. She said, "Why don't you release your taxes?" and uh, and in the, he very he 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 very uh, accurately said. If you're worried about how much I pay in taxes, you should change the tax code. But you're not going to change the tax code because it benefits your funders and your friends. And you, by the way, Clintons, you're very wealthy. That was honesty, ladies and gentlemen, from a liar. And a lot of people in the United States responded well to it because they know that. They know the tax code is rigged to help the the richest of the rich. And then Donald Trump didn't like improve things to put it mildly. We passed legislation in 2017 to make it benefit the rich even more. But the reality is he told the truth in that one moment and he's going to tell the truth again. Every single one of these powerful Republicans who are saying, don't run Donald, don't run Donald. were on their bended knees. When he was the president, they've been on their bended knees for the last two years since he's not been the president. They didn't leave him when he instigated an insurrection. They didn't chastise him when he said the election was stolen, even though everyone knew that was a lie. They stood by him. They're only trying to leave him right now because it's they're a little worried that they can't win if he's around. He'll call him out on that. And you know what? He'll be telling the truth when he does that. The liar will be telling the truth when he says that. They all are a bunch of frauds. They had a chance. They could have supported Adam Kinzinger. They could have supported Lynn Cheney. They didn't. They turned on them. They kicked them out of the Republican Party. And now what? You want to kick Donald Trump out of the Republican Party? Because he didn't win the midterms for you. <laughs> he dominated the primaries. Most of his candidates won the primaries. Underscoring the point I made. The base of the Republican Party is still very loyal to Donald Trump. So Republicans in charge who want to move him aside. I don't think that's going to be as easy as you think. And I wouldn't be surprised if most of them. When they see some polls start bowing down to him again. Oh, yes, Mr. Trump. Oh, yes. I didn't really mean that. That was Rupert Murdoch who said that. That wasn't me. Yeah. Listen, Republicans, nothing's changed since Donald Trump got off that elevator in, in 2015 and announced he was running for president. You got to take a stand against him if you want him out of your party. And if you're not willing to take that stand, then just get out of the way because you're freaking useless. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring on my distinguished guest who's been sitting by patiently. I don't know how much he agreed with me. Uh, everything I said on that uh, riff I just went on, I'm sure he'll be happy to disagree with me. Dear friend of uh, this show and a good friend of mine, David Seaton, co-host with uh, another good friend of Tebow Buchanan of the Buchanan Seaton Show and WVON. I was a guest on his show last week. And now he's a guest on my show. David Seaton, it's good to see your beautiful face. Always a pleasure. The pulchritude emanating from your camera is far superior to mine. 
<laughs> I love it when you use big words. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I just want to give a shout out. Uh, Harry, I said this last week, but uh, Atiba uh, had some uh, head surgery. I'm sure he's doing well. I haven't heard from him in a while, but I presume he's doing well. All's in, all, no news is good news. So nothing but good vibrations to uh, your high school friend, your your partner in crime in the radio game, uh, Atiba Buchanan. Right, David? Thank you. Uh, yeah, he's he is at home recuperating. Uh, he's doing well, and he's he he actually uh, on the night that you and I were doing the show on the midterm, he was texting us trying to tell us trying to give us some ideas of what to talk about. I told him. I told him, man, the quarterback has to sit back sometimes, man. Just take it easy. Just take it easy. Absolutely. That's right. He was texting me. Say this, say that. (laughs) (laughs) I love you, Atiba. Um, So, uh, all right, uh, let's, uh, let's take a deep dive. Oh, by the way, listeners out there wondering, where's Monroe Anderson? It's Wednesday. Why not Monroe? Monroe uh, is visiting a family uh, in California. He's already left for Thanksgiving. So uh, I know he would be so eager to weigh in on Donald Trump, uh, but he, uh, can't join us today because uh, he's with his family out. All right. Uh, so, so much to talk about with you, uh, David, um, the midterms on my mind. Uh, you gave me a, an assignment, which I dutifully, usually I give the homework assignments. David Seaton gave me the homework. I just want to show you, David, that I was not lying. I went to the library and dutifully checked out Thomas Sowell's book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals, and uh, read the two, first two chapters while I was sitting in the library. Uh, I found it a fascinating read on many levels, even if I didn't agree with everything Thomas Sowell uh, was writing. I don't know if we'll have time to talk about that. Maybe I have to bring you back for a whole separate show on some of the ideas he brought out. It's very, it's his subject, Matt. I mean, it's so robust. It's so interesting. It challenges a lot of the narratives that we kind of just accept, uh, especially in the, in the minority community. I would love to have a conversation about that. Absolutely. Uh, really good stuff in there. Uh, interesting stuff. Like I said, I didn't agree with everything, but it opened my eyes. Black Rednecks and White Liberals by Thomas Sowell, who's a very conservative uh, writer and thinker and scholar and a legitimate scholar. Not like a Kyrie Irving guy that he throws up on the internet who hasn't done any research. It's just talking out the top. Thomas Sowell backs up everything he says, uh, David Seaton. Footnotes to other learned scholars and uh, primary research. Legit scholar. Even if you don't agree with him, he's more conservative than I am. But I'm like, mm, learning something from this guy, and it's uh, legit stuff. All right. Donald Trump announces uh, he's running again. You heard my take, my uh, just off the top of my head take. What's your take about Donald Trump running for president again? I would agree with you that he was definitely a lot more subdued during his announcement. Uh, I even read something that he he locked the doors to make sure that no one could leave early, as 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 has become customary in, in a lot of his rallies as of late. Uh, the, the, the reaction to the audience was very subdued. The applause were anemic. Uh, you know, you could tell it was just a room full of sycophants and acolytes that were, that were present. I think that Donald Trump is, I mean, this is, this is, this is his last opportunity. Yeah. This is his last opportunity to, to try and do it. And, and, and even if I'm going to be completely honest, if we're going to be completely honest and be intellectually consistent. This is his third time running for president. Well, guess who else has run for president three times? Joe Biden. <laughs> Ronald Reagan, you know, ran for president. Oh, yeah, okay. So it would so, be four if he runs four. for re-election. Go ahead. Well, four if he goes to re-election. Correct. Mm-hmm. So Donald Trump is not the first person to have uh, to to attempt multiple times to run for for the president. Uh, uh, Richard Nixon. Ran ran a few times, uh, you know, before he actually won. So it, it's not without precedent that that someone has made the attempt. Donald Trump is a uniquely divisive <laughs> figure, uh, and again, a lot of the a lot of the the pushback, the same pushback that we're hearing from the same quarters of the Republican Party. It's the same pushback from the same people that we heard in his uh, when he ran in 2016. So that that refrain from that part of the chorus is again is unsurprising. It's banal. Uh, if, if Donald Trump gets momentum, 
and gets the voters to to coalesce around his candidacy during the primaries, then everyone else who are the naysayers and the never Trumpers will will fall in line because that's the one difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party is that Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. So uh, I, I suspect that he will, uh, the verbal pugilist that he is, <laughs> that he will slog his way through the primary and we're going to see Donald Donald Trump being the Republican uh, nominee again. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I would just push back a little bit. The never Trumpers got that name because they're never Trumpers, but they are just, so they won't back them. They didn't back them before. They're not going to back them now, but to your larger point, they're re- la- irrelevant to the Republican party now. And so the argument, I just find it so disingenuous, David, that I I just read this column uh, by Brett Stevens in the New York Times, who is essentially, he's a right winger. Uh, He's very much a conservative and he wants Republicans to win. And he just fears that Donald Trump can't win. So he just wants him off the stage because he can't win. It has nothing to do with what Donald Trump has done or would do or the damage and danger he does. He just he can't win, so get rid of him. And I'm like, dude, I don't know how to put this to you. I'm like, he's going to be the Republican nominee. So at some point, if he keeps running, and I agree with you on that point, at some point, you got to take a legitimate stand against Donald Trump and try to make the case, not that he's a losing candidate, which is a dishonest case to make, but that you disagree with how he goes about his life. They're too chicken to say that, David. You know, they're too chicken to say that the the allegations of the election being stolen were a lie. So they fear Trump as much as they fear the voters. That, that, that's ultimately the issue. The, I, mean, I mean, if you go back and you look at, I remember in one of the early, and, and he only said this once, but I remember in one of, the early, one of the very first Republican debates in the 2016 cycle, they were having a conversation about uh, wages and minimum wage, and that was when the fight for 15 was still uh, very, very prominent. And Donald Trump said one time, that uh, in one of those earlier debates, that people are going to have to accept lower wages. He said it that one time, it didn't get an applause line, it didn't get a reaction, and then he never said it again. Uh, so, uh, but because, you know, he's a cult of personality. And at the end of the day, I suspect that there are enough people of goodwill, like the Kleisingers, like the Liz Cheney's, uh, there are enough people in, in that in that corner of the Republican Party that they would probably launch a, a an independent run or, or do something to fracture that Republican vote. Uh, because if they just, you know, if they if they just allow it to be just a straight up and down fight. The, the, the possibility of Trump winning again is is not zero. Uh, he, you, you, he has gotten a larger share of black male votes. Uh, he is, he, the, the amount of black males that supported him from 16 to 2020 doubled. Uh, he's gotten a larger percentage of the Latino vote. He made reference to that, to both of those facts last night. Uh, so I think when he ran in 2016, because if you look at the numbers, the interesting thing is, is that if you look at the numbers, there are about 180 million non-Hispanic white voters of voting age in the United States, and about 53% of those individuals identify as Republican or lean Republican. So when you take that number of people, it's about 110 million people. If you take the majority of Asians, Latinos, and Blacks who are Democrat or lean Democratic, it's only 91 million people. So I think that in in 2016, Donald Trump made the strategic choice to say the the larger bucket of votes are with white, non-Hispanic, white Americans who are evangelical and who identify as Republican. And he tailored his message 
to that group of people. This time around, I suspect he's going to he's going to tailor his message strictly along ideological lines, and he'll be able to pick up some individuals who are disaffected with the Democratic Party. Okay, we're about to head into one of uh, David Seaton's uh, favorite uh, uh, points. Uh, we've had this conversation so many times on his show, on my show, on the telephone. Uh, I can see we're heading down that. Uh, and you sent me an email uh, that was about a week ago with a chart that yep. illustrated this point. Exactly. Uh, and uh, so why don't you elaborate a little bit about your theory about um, the voting population in this country as it stands right now uh, and what it says about the voting powers of white people, black people, Latino people, et cetera. Go ahead. No, absolutely. If, if you look at the numbers and I'll pull them up while we're having this conversation, but if you look at the, if you look at African-Americans in particular, African-Americans who are Democrats have characterized Donald Trump as uh, being a racist. You know, that's just flat out has been the de facto position from black America. But if you look at, if you look at the numbers and I have them pulled up, there are 46,800,000 uh, black people, uh, you know, as far as population in the country, 7% of them identify as Republican and 87% of them identify as Democrat, either lean Democrat or, or Democratic and 7% Republican or lean Republican. So just from a numbers perspective, the the number of African-Americans who identify as Republican, are it's there are 3 million black voters who identify as Republican. If you are going to craft a strategy where you are trying to attract the largest number of people with the least amount of, of work that you have to do, 3 million people is not enough. Just from a numerical standpoint, that you're going to expend a lot of money trying to convince 18, you know, 87% of a group uh, to, to, to vote your way. The, in the Latino group, uh, in, among the Latino population, there's 65 million, plus or minus, 27% identify as Republican, 63% identify as Democratic. And among the Asian population, which is the smallest population, there's only about 18 million uh, Asian Americans, 24% of them identify as Republican and 61%. So a, a super majority of Asians, Latinos, and Blacks identify with the Democratic Party, but those numbers combined are less than the total number of white Americans who identify as Republicans. There, there are 191 million non-Hispanic white people in America, and 54%, or 103 million of those individuals, identify as Republicans. So if you're Donald Trump, and you get the Republican nomination, are you going to, where are you going to, who, who are you going to tailor your message towards? And in so doing, tailoring his message to white, Republican, evangelical Americans, I can understand how someone who is not white would, would listen to his message and say, it sounds racist, but that was a marketing decision that he made because he wanted to win the nomination and it, it was easier to go. It, it's easier to convince a few more, a few more of the hundred million white people who identify as democratic. It's easier to convince, to convince more of them to come onto your side than it is to, to convince 87, 63% and 61% respectively of blacks, Latinos and Asians. That, it, it's really just as simple as that. Yeah. And uh, what's in his heart of hearts I do not know, although uh, I can make a very compelling case based on the history of Donald Trump uh, and going back to his father and uh, the way they handled their business operation, their housing operation, that in his heart of hearts, it's not that difficult for him uh, to make an appeal along racial lines to white people because kind of been where he's been his whole life in his heart of hearts. Go ahead. Yeah, but, but again, even in that whole, even in that whole example of, oh, Donald Trump was running this organization when his father was still alive and 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 they would put a C, uh, you know, a C for colored on applications that, that, that were submitted from black people. Don, neither Fred Trump nor Donald Trump were sitting in the office interviewing applicants, nor were they the person who were approving applicants. They hired people to do that. Now, 
you know, you could make the argument perhaps that Fred and or Donald Trump created perhaps uh, a uh, an environment that that didn't disallow that. But again, we have to put it we have to put it in, in its in its historical context in the 1970s. <laughs> when when he when his organization was accused of doing this, the Fair Housing Act didn't pass until 1974. My parents bought a house in 1971 in Broadview, uh, which is a near west suburb of Chicago, and the covenant that that white people could put on their on their um, on their deeds, don't sell this house to a black person, was still legal a year before. So again, it's 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 easy to to say in 2022. It's easy to be taken aback and aghast that, oh, I can't believe that they didn't want black people moving into their high rise, you know, luxury building in New York, you know, 50 years ago. But that was what happened 50 years ago. So, again, we have to put it in its historic in its correct historical perspective. Well, I, I never would never would say I can't believe he did it. I would be astounded if it was the opposite. I would be astounded if, if Fred and Donald Trump were leading the charge against racial covenants. So I totally believe that it happened. It's not that I can't believe that it happened. It's I'm just saying uh, that's where he comes from. So I'm not surprised that as he moves on, moves on in age, he's just it's just uh, seconding the positions, the worldview he's always had. It's not like he had this moment of reflection and awareness, uh, David, where he said, you know what? The way I live my life, the way my father lived his life was absolutely wrong. It's fed to this notions of segregation that have bedeviled our society forever. I have come to realize. <laughs> no, he hasn't had that. He hasn't had that moment, David Seaton. If anything, if anything, the experience with with his uh, with his building or the buildings that he managed at that time, uh, uh, not allowing um, uh, black applicants to move into the building. It was the same transactional thought process that he did back then that he that I just described in terms of the voters that he was going to target. At the end of the day, whether we like it or not, in the 1970s, if he built a 50-story luxury apartment slash condo building, there was a there was a very small percentage of African Americans who could either afford to or would move into that building. So is he going to make, so he made the transactional thought process to said, Hey, for these, am I going to let these five or 10 black applicants move into the building and make the other hundred white people move out? No, no, no one. And no one would do that. Yeah. No one would do that. Uh, let's move on to something, uh, or move back to something you said. I took note to come back to it. Uh, the difference between uh, the black male vote, uh, and the black woman vote, uh, in the midterms and in the 2020, uh, presidential election, you've talked about this on your show, uh, many times. Uh, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit. Uh, I, pr- I'll get into it, uh, in the after, I just want to say up front, these are based on, um, exit polls. Yes. I do not trust exit polls, particularly when it comes to black people. I try to deal as much as I can with actual votes. So, and so I take a look generally after every election uh, at the uh, black wards in Chicago, because you go to the Chicago board of election commissioners. These are wards that are almost a hundred percent black, the sixth ward, the eighth ward, South side wards. And, uh, it, so you guess that's that's just like raw, real numbers. To your point, the Donald Trump got about three percent of the vote in twenty twenty out of these wards. Three percent, which was more than the one point eight percent. So it, you know what, it went up. To your so I, I said, oh, I got to tell, I got to, it's going to kill me to do this, but I got to tell Seton he's right. Uh, it went up, sure. but it's still. Three percent. Okay. And that's what Darren Bailey got as well. But I do believe you're on to something when you talk about even within that that, uh, subgroup of African-American voters, a distinction between men and women. So take it away. Go ahead, David. Yeah, the the in the and what it is, is referred to as the black manosphere on the Internet. It's very prominent on YouTube and. Uh, that that's just a, a group of men who are who are very uh, they're very traditional they're very conservative in terms of their worldview in terms of the views of of their family life 
Um, they're, they are very, they are not beholden to this ideology that white supremacy and, and racism is what's holding black people back from, from advancing today. They, they embrace more of a self-reliant type of uh, ideology. Uh, and among that same black manosphere, and I can say uh, being on WVON, that a lot of the VON listeners, there's a, there's a sizable amount of, of black, of black, there's a side, there's a plurality of black people who have, who are more conservative and they believe that the welfare state that was started under Lyndon Baines Johnson as part of the great society has contributed greatly to the trajectory uh, of, of black uh, unachievement since the sixties. If you look at, if you look at African-Americans and the reduction in poverty from the 20s to the 60s, it went down from 83% to 40%. So it was going down very, very quickly. Then you look at the introduction of the, of the, uh, of the Great Society and the, introdu- the introduction of welfare, it went down, but it went down from 40% to uh, 28%. So, the, so the, the, the growth slowed greatly. So for, for the black men who hold those conservative views, they look at, they associate those welfare programs that have hurt the black community as a function of the Democratic Party. And that, that has been part of the reason why the Democratic Party has seen that attrition coupled with the message from Donald Trump that says, Hey, you're going through your you can't you, you're living in these horrible neighborhoods. You walk down the street and you get shot. What do you have to lose? And for the people who look at democratic initiatives that have contributed to the the retardation of the social advancement of African Americans from 1960 until today, they hear that message. That message from Trump resonates with them. Uh, with black women. Uh, not so much because black women as a demographic uh, are, are by percentage the largest recipient or beneficiary of those programs. So that they, that they would make the same association that the Democratic Party, they make the association that those programs are directly from the Democratic Party, there would be less attrition by black women just, just because of that fact. I did not. Uh, I must say that I'm not aware of uh, uh, just a difference between black men and women uh, on the issue of getting uh, assistance from the government. So uh, that's uh, that's one of those things where I'm just I'm going to peg that right there. And the next time you come on the show, uh, <laughs> which is really we're heading into Thomas Sowell country, even though I said we're not going to do that in this show. <laughs> but he's the man is driving a truck right into Thomas Sowell country. <laughs> he's, this argument that uh, David is making is straight up Thomas Sowell. Uh, and, and, and again, one could, and again, it's not even, it's not even a racial argument as much as it is a human nature argument. Human, human beings just by nature are going to take the path of least resistance. That's just, that's anything that's talking about. If you're, if you're playing a game of football, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to, you know, figure out how you're going to pay your Bill, uh, you know, you know, taking the path of least resistance is is an aphorism because it's it's very basic to human nature. And so one could argue one could argue and and Thomas Sowell makes the argument and I've observed it in my personal life. So I subscribe to the same that if you uh, if you if you create low, if you create low hanging fruit where an individual can access the benefits of said fruit without, with, with, with a minimum amount of effort, then you're going to cause, you're going to cause a, disproportionate, um, a disproportionately larger number of people to take the easier route. It's not, again, it's not rocket science. Uh, you know, if you, tell a, if, you tell a, if you tell an 18-year-old girl that if she gets pregnant, that and if she drops out of high school, that you will give her an apartment that costs $10 a month and you'll give her food stamps and you'll give her, uh, you know, you'll give, you'll, you'll take care of her utilities and she doesn't have to work. 
if you tell someone that at age 17, 18 years old, they might they might choose that option. If the other option is, oh, I got to go to college, I've got to go to a trade school, I've got to go out here and work 40 hours a week uh, at a job that, you know, the, if I go and I take this welfare, it's going to pay me after it pays for my rent and my food and my childcare and blah, 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 blah. When I add all that up, it's going to be paying me X, uh, X dollars an hour. But if I go out there and get a job, I can only get a job paying me 75% of X because I have no skills. Well, is that person, some people are going to say, yeah, well, I go out and have the baby and now I don't have to do anything. That, that's okay, that, you're now you're heading to Ronald Reagan country. Uh, but before <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to uh, point something out. So I said this at the outset of this uh, conversation at, at this particular subset of the conversation, I'll repeat it. Uh, 3%. That's the vote that Donald Trump got. In, so in the Chicago wars that you're talking about. Yes. 3%. The Chicago wars that you're talking about are tradition. That's that. That's what I just said a moment ago. 87% of African-Americans identify as democratic or lean democratic. And as you go into uh, African-American areas, uh, that are that are that skew lower socioeconomically. That number goes up a little well, bit. Well, we, we will see. I'll take the deep dive. The the the, the thing that about the sixth ward and the eighth ward, it's about a hundred percent African American. So uh, I I gotta find. I've had to. Do you know how long? How many years I've been having this discussion, David Seaton? Before I knew you in in two thousand and four, when they came out with that cockamamie exit poll that said twenty percent of black people voted for George Bush, I go, no way, twenty percent. Uh uh, that's a lie. Those exit polls, the black people are lying to those exit polls. And so I would take. This is how insane I am. I this I admit. I'm a little weird, uh, David. I would track down all like 100% black precincts from Alabama. Because the argument, oh, Ben, you don't understand. You just know black people in Chicago. They're different in Alabama. They're different in South Carolina. So, okay, I'd go look. Guess what, David Seaton? It was like 95% vote against George Bush, I believe that there has been this myth that has been presented, not unlike the myth that Michael Moore exposed uh, when he, the leftist filmmaker Michael Moore exposed in this last midterm about how the polls are skewed to make it look like Republicans are winning. Democrats hide under tables. They're so scared of those polls. You and I know about this because one time on your show, a poll came out that said Darren Bailey had pulled within five percentage points of Pritzker. Remember you and I had a conversation about that on your show. So well, the, the same polling error or sampling error that you're, that you're referring to, that that caused the Republicans to overestimate the success they would have in the midterms is the same polling error that happened in 2016 when we thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. So, I, so I would certainly agree with you that if you are using, if you are not using a model that uh, that is statistically representative of the of the electorate in the moment. If we used a if we use a statistical sampling model from 1960, <laughs> when the country was still 82 percent white, then yes, we would get a very you know that we would get a very very skewed result. So I will agree with you that 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 having an accurate sampling of the electorate as it is in the moment uh, uh, will dictate how uh, you know how accurate your polling is. That said, uh, I, I don't have any reason to believe. Uh, and and I, that that an exit poll is any more or less accurate than an actual poll because in a, in a, in an exit poll you're not asking people how will you vote you're asking people how did you vote yes and it's still voluntary so no like I said I, again just being just 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 being as as an African American and like I said uh, having proximity to the, like I said, just not even going into the whole manosphere thing from the internet. Just, just, list, just being a a personality on WVON. Yeah. I would say probably four out of ten, maybe maybe even fifty fifty callers to VON 
are completely dissatisfied with the the Democratic Party to the point that for those individuals, they reference the Democratic Party as the plantation. Yeah. Off the plantation, which is an anachronism that doesn't even make sense because the Democrats during slavery were the conservatives of their day and the Republicans were the liberals of their day that they were anti-abolitionists. You fast forward to today that the 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 Democrats have become the liberals and the Republicans are are the conservatives. So even that even that uh, that analogy doesn't make sense. But. But that's what people that's how people refer to the Democratic Party as the plantation. I I, I know I've been on your show. I've heard the calls. (laughs) Uh, So I know exactly what you're talking about. By the way, my favorite part of your last riff was the part where you said, I would certainly agree with you. I'm going to put that on a T-shirt and and send it to you. I would certainly agree with you. I'm taking that team with Buchanan. Are you listening? David Seaton said, I would certainly agree with you. I before the show, I uh, started, you know, taking that deep dive into. Uh, I just love looking at election results; kind of a weird thing in mind. Uh, and I stumbled upon this one. I hadn't looked in a while. So, 2012, Barack Obama running for re-election uh, against Mitt Romney. What is your guess of the vote he got in the sixth ward, which again, a Southside ward, uh, with probably a hundred percent black residents. What is your guess of the vote that Barack Obama got? I know it went down from 2008 to 2012. I, I, I know nationally the numbers reported were that in 2008 that Barack Obama got 97% of the black vote. And that in 19 in 2012, it was down to 92 or 93%. But I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know about specifics. Okay, so this is why I don't trust exit polls. I, too, I, uh, the overall vote for uh, Obama fell in 2012 across the board from 2008 because it obviously wasn't as pivotal election. But the percentage vote was get ready for this. Ninety nine point two percent. Ninety nine point. If it was, I couldn't look at 2008 because I was too much in a hurry to do the show. But ah, oh man, it was tempting, David. But I would have been late for the show, so I couldn't look. But I doubt it could fall much from to get to 99.2 percent. And so, I can. But that's, almost- not, but that's not unusual. I I, I don't think uh, you would you would only be surprised at that number if if you disaggregate the amount of enthusiasm that African-Americans had about having who they thought, who they perceived to be an African-American president, the first African-American president. So it's, and again, like I said, 87% of African-Americans identify as either Democratic or lean Democratic. And as, as the, as those individuals, as they're so, as they go further down socioeconomically, it goes higher still. So it's not surprising to me that uh, that that you know, I, it's not surprising to me at all that the number would be that high in a poor black ward. I would challenge you to go find a middle class black ward or well, six wards pretty middle class or or even an, uh, an upper class, uh, you know, predominantly black uh, neighborhood. And you would probably see that, that you know, that, that the numbers weren't that high. Um, and again, the, the margin by which Obama won in 2008, just the raw vote total and the electoral college vote went down from 2008 to 2012. And, and, and part of that was because, again, there are black people today who look back on the Obama presidency and say he didn't do anything for black people. And there were people who felt that way in 2012. They were like, OK, we did. Patrice O'Neill, the, the, uh, the late Patrice O'Neill. Uh, has a riff uh, on one of his stand-ups where he where he talks about uh, you know that he he had some dissatisfaction with Obama right in the middle you know of yeah. his presidency and he and he was saying to the white audience he was saying if you guys would just be quiet we would catch up with you but we can't talk about him when you're talking about him and you know so again that's a that's another cultural thing but yeah but no that's not surprising to to hear that that especially in Chicago. 
uh, you know, again, the I, I don't I don't think non-black people appreciate the level. I remember being in a I was I was a I was a, involved in church at that time, and I remember us having this meeting. And most of the people that that they were in the church were you know baby boomers, so they were you know early mid sixties, and they were just saying, "I can't wait for Obama to be president because he's going to be able to change everything." And I was the only person sitting there saying, well, the president doesn't change anything. The Congress has to change the things and then the president can sign it into law. But just me making that factual statement, you would have thought that my head spun around and I'd spit (laughs) out, you know, uh, green butter. They were just so offended <laughs> that that I wasn't along so again it, it's it, it again there was it, there was a huge amount of enthusiasm in the black community uh, especially when he won the first time all right let's take a look move away from uh black vote and look at the white vote uh in the midterms so obviously the dems uh, outperforms expectations uh, they held on to the senate uh, as of now, it looks as though the Republicans are going to win the House. Maybe they've already been declared winners. We, we, we've been talking for a while, so I've been away from the news. Uh, but they, their last projection I saw, they were within one seat of having a majority uh, in the House of Representatives. But it's much closer than anyone had anticipated. Uh, and um, many of the swing districts, uh, like the areas uh, they, around where you live, uh, went Democrat. Now, in Illinois, a lot of that has to do with the brilliant map-making of Chris Welch. Shout out Chris Welch. Uh, maybe that, my opinion, is one of the shrewdest political operatives in the country. doesn't get the credit he deserves in that regard. He put together a map that benefited Democrats, and Republicans have been crying ever since. He put together Supreme Court maps that benefited Democrats. Republicans are sobbing. Biggest bunch of phonies I've ever seen, David Seaton. Um, but... Even with those uh, maps that are tailored for uh, Democrats, it's clear that something is going on in suburban America. That they're obviously not attracted to MAGA. And that's my read of it. Now, whether Republicans can bring them back uh, is, remains to be seen. Things are always changing in politics. You know that, David. But right now, when we look at it, uh, what's your sense of what's going on uh, in suburban areas, not unlike the ones uh, that either are just west of you or that you live in. Go ahead. I think that the the Republicans miscalculated on the importance of Roe versus Wade being overturned. Uh, again, at the end of the day, whether you like, just like the, you know, when I talk about racial demographics and I say whether you like it or not, you know, uh, 68% of, of, of this country or 58% of this country is white. Whether men like it or not, uh, 53% of this country, 53, 54% of this country is female. And, and not all women uh, are evangelical Christians. And as you move from, uh, as you, you, as you move from baby boomers to Gen X to millennials to Gen Z, religious affiliation goes down it it falls off a cliff so uh and people forget that the millennials are the only other demographic that are comparable in size to the baby boomers and the baby boomers are continuing to to die off so you have millennials and generation z women who showed up in bigger numbers and and they were thinking that you know it was top of mind for them about Roe versus Wade, and and then you know again the Republicans you know they cut off their nose to spite their face. Not a, they weren't satisfied with the the Supreme Court you know overturning Roe versus Wade and kicking it to the states. Then they had to take it you know as far as they could in those individual states. So I think uh, again and 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 I'm not and I'm not 100 sold on it, but I don't know that I can discount the argument that Biden was making in the closing days that democracy was on the mm. line. Uh, so I, I think those things were, were top of mind for individuals who are not MAGA, uh, who are not, who are not, who, who that's not, that doesn't, if, if you're not, a, if you're not a person that the MAGA 
the whole MAGA movement drives your ideology, then you are at least open to considering the overturning of Roe versus Wade and, and what was going on with democracy. Um, and like I said, I, I think the Republicans overplayed their hand uh, and, and, and they're positioning themselves to do so again. It, it, you know, they, they're already out there, you know, talking about, you know, putting five year term limits on, on the, on the non-discretionary budget so that every five years they'd have to vote on social security and Medicare. Well, you know, for someone like me who has a senior mother who's living with me, uh, who is a recipient of uh, Medicare, um, you know, again, that when I hear something like that, uh, as as much as I think that perhaps we could have a, it's fair to have a discussion that the the investments that we make in the senior in, in the senior population and the oldest part of our demo, of our population is probably lopsided. Uh, you can make that argument, but to but to to hear someone say they're going to get rid of Medicare, you know, that again, those kinds of things, you know, I think is what call is what hit those people. In, in suburban America, and and but but it, but to your point, they didn't. It, it was weird. It was because everywhere where, where they kind of made a split decision. New York is a perfect example where the Democratic uh, uh, governor, you know, she retained her position as governor, but then for all of the congressional seats in New York, they elected Republicans. Not all, but there were three seats that flipped. Don't get me started on New York Democrats. New York Democrats need Chris Welch. And I can't, I don't, I mean, listen, when I sing Chris Welch's praise, it's not because we share an ideology. I'm to the left of Chris. Okay. He's been on the show. I know, I know him a little bit, yeah. you know, Chris and, uh, yeah, you guys went to high. That's right. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Y'all went to rise of West together. So, uh, he was an excellent athlete. He was a baseball player. Anyway, neither here nor there. The, the man knows how to play the political game. That's why I gave him praise. And Republic and Democrats have been outstrategized time and time again by their Republican um, opponents. Mitch McConnell in in the Senate is the classic case of that. In New York, there's a long and a long and just torturous history of how Democrats made a mess of that the, uh, the remapping, and as a result, the maps that. That uh, ruled in the midterms, the congressional maps favored Republicans. How that can happen in a Democratic state is only can only be answered by the utter incompetence and foolishness of the Democrats in New York and their dedication to Andrew Cuomo, who betrayed them at every step of the way and left them in shambles. And so, in they do not have a Chris Welch in in New New York. That's one argument. There's there's one. What, Repub- what Democrats typically say when we lose is we say it's gerrymandering and we, and we blame uh, voter suppression. When Republican, but, but when Republicans lose and they say the Democrats lost, when the Republicans win uh, and the Democrats lose, and the Demo- and, I'm sorry, when the Republicans lose and we, we say, no, you just didn't have the superior message. Your solutions didn't resonate with the voters. I submit that instead of if we have the superior message, if 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 you take if you take the people who are middle class, working class and poor across all racial demographics, you would have about two two thirds of the United States. If the Democratic Party crafted a message that spoke to middle class working working class and poor people irrespective of race they would never lose an election because that's the again when we talk about the richest people in this country we're talking we say we refer to them as the top one percent in order for you to qualify or or in order for you to qualify as rich in this country in terms of the in terms of uh, income demography you have to be part of the top 10 percent so theoretically, if the Democrats spoke to the middle class, working class and poor, they theoretically could get up to 90 percent of the vote. So you could gerrymander whatever you want to do. But if you're speaking to people who make less than two hundred thousand dollars a year, you should be able to get everybody regardless of race. But that's not but that's not what the Democrats do. They have they have spoken just to people of color, 
women, and LGBTQ. That, yeah. Those are the three groups that they speak to. I disagree completely on that. Uh, every pretty much everything you said. I'm that now the T-shirt I'm going to make is I disagree with that. Uh, <laughs> David Seaton, uh, gerrymandering. Uh, I. I don't care what message you craft. Gerrymandering is everything in a legislative race. I wish Chris Welch was here to to just support this point. Anyone who's been in the legislature, anyone who's been an alderman in the city of Chicago, anyone who's been uh, an assemblyman in Alabama or Texas, they could tell you how you draw the boundaries determines who controls the house. Absolutely. I'm not not disagreeing with you that gerrymandering is a variable. What I'm saying is, is that even in the even in the districts that are the most gerrymandered, that are gerrymandered, that gerrymandered to the point where where people are being sued because like they did in North Carolina, because they said they went out there and carved those districts (laughs) with surgical precision, even in the most. Even in the most gerrymandered districts, the vote is at most 60-40. Well, okay, so this is what I'm. This is what I was getting at. Like operating, uh, even with this, uh, the world of gerrymandering, there it seems as though, and this is why the Republicans are nervous that. Their message, whatever that message is, like a very nihilistic message, it's a very, uh, at best, uh, very dark and bleak message is not working. And when you added uh, that list that you ran out with the Democrats are speaking to, I would add, like anybody who cares about the climate, anybody who cares about the environment is on the Democratic side because the Republicans have no policy whatsoever on this. Not even like a market based one. They have nothing. They just deny that it exists. The Republicans have no position on it. This is this is what I say when I come on David's show, ladies and gentlemen. You know, he's he's heard me say this. It's like a broken record. They stand for nothing. You know, I they. It's just you're like this bleak, my, but you're making my point for me. Oh, that the Republicans <laughs> stand for nothing. Yes, means that if the Republicans are putting forth solutions oriented strategic investments that are going to redound to the benefit of 90% of the country, even in a gerrymandered district, it could still be competitive. I I understand. I understand what gerrymandering is and how it, and how it, you know, how it redounds to the benefit of one party or another, because they're, because again, they can't, they can't go in there and say that nobody knows how David Seaton and Ben Jarofsky vote. They don't they don't know who I voted for on my ballot because it's all anonymous. They know that in the area where I live, the percentages of people who voted for X or who voted for Y. But but my point is, is that even if you gerrymander the districts, you're still taking a gamble that people in that area are going to have an ideological bent one way or the other. And if, and if, and I agree with you, the Republicans are offering nothing. Mm. So if the other party is off, even if even if the even if that if the Republican Party is offering nothing, then the Democrats need to find out why is offering nothing better than something, and then craft a message about how to get those people to to resonate with the fact that what I'm giving you is better than nothing. What I'm giving you is better than bile and 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 just a. Uh, are uh, uh, you know sticking it to the libs and and just you know just pugilism and perpetuity? They're, they're, we've got to find a way to convince people that that is not that is not in your own best self interest. And if we can find so that still goes back to democratic messaging. All right, you know what? Uh, as I do with my guests, I always allow my guests to have the final word because that's what a courteous host does. And I think David does that with me on his show too. Uh, he always lets me get the last word. Uh, so I'm going to let you get the last word. Plus, I love that line, uh, pugilistic and perpetuity. That is, that's harder to say than you think. Uh, <laughs> so uh, David Seaton, one more time. Uh, this is the book. And uh, I have it. We're going to have a discussion with about Thomas Sowell's Black Rednecks and Red. It's a, the book is like 20 years old. It's only in the Ben Jarofsky show. Would we have a debate about a book that's 20 years old? 
Uh, I want to take this opportunity to promote a show that I'm doing December 6th at the Promontory. I got to get the word out. Uh, it's going to be with Maya Duke Masafa. We secured a location, a venue, Promontory in Hyde Park. And uh, December 6th, 630, Joe Winston, the director of Punch Nine, will be there. We'll be showing clips of Punch Nine, the great documentary about Howard Washington. Fantastic movie. Uh, he'll be showing clips. And then uh, Alderwoman Leslie Hairston and Alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez will join us for a larger conversation about the city council back in the 80s under Harold when Harold was the mayor and up to the city council right now and the changes in democracy in Chicago. So it'll be a really great conversation. I urge everybody to check it out uh, Tuesday, December 6th. Maybe I could talk uh, David Seaton into coming down to Hyde Park uh, and and uh, watching the show. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much, David. I appreciate you taking time to come talk to us. It is always a pleasure, my friend. All right, that's a great David Seaton, uh, co-host with uh, Tibu Buchanan of Buchanan Seaton on WVON. I uh, also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as David Seaton and a Tibu Buchanan will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Keep yourself a raise, <laughs> take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. Peace and love, everybody.